Hey y'all, it's May. Welcome back to the Make Work Human podcast. In this episode, Mo is talking with someone named Zanika Chapman, and they're talking about workplace trauma and the impact that it has on so many people. Zanika is a certified personal and executive coach. She helps women rediscover their inner strength and confidence in the aftermath of workplace-related trauma. In today's episode, Zanika talks about her experience with workplace trauma and how it led her to create a program called Dare to Disrupt in support of those who have experienced trauma at work, especially women of color. Today, they discuss the importance of accomplices rather than allies in creating a healthy workplace culture. They also explore the important role of white women in being aware of their own enculturation and to invest in their own well-being, as well as the well-being of their colleagues. We all have a role in preventing workplace trauma and helping facilitate healing when it happens. Listen in. We hope you like it. Imagine if work was actually good for people, not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but it's actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Welcome, Zanika. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to have you here. And for our listeners, I'm here. You just heard the intro of Zanika Chapman. We are here today on Let's Make Work Human. Zanika and I met through a professional group that we're part of, and I was really intrigued with the work that she's doing, how she's survived the global pandemic during that work, and very excited for you to have a chance to meet her and and learn more about the impact that she's having in the world. So thank you, Zanika, for taking time to talk to us. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit from your experience. Talk to me as if I were a young child about the work you do. Uh, so I would say the best way to describe my work and coming from that lens is I help women who would consider themselves to be overworked, overlooked, and just hashtag over it as it relates to their work. And so I really help them rediscover what success looks like for them. Mm. And I help them build an action plan to get there authentically. Mm, beautiful. Overlooked, overworked, and over it. And tell us about how you landed on that audience, Absolutely. on picking that group. Yeah. So I actually had an experience, Mo, where I did not know it at the time, but I was working what I would have told you was my dream job. Mm. I felt like I had that moment where I had officially arrived. Check the box. I did it. (laughs) That's right. We're done. It was everything I thought it was going to be. I was challenged in a way that we all want to be challenged at work. I was was on a great team. I really admired the leaders and the coworkers I had. I felt like I am, they make me want to be a better, I was doing strategic communications work. And I was like, this is the group I need to be in because they're going to make me a better communicator. Mm -hmm. Everything that, that I really thought it was going to be, It was everything that it was promised to me until probably about 18 months into that when it became probably the worst working experience I had ever had, where Mm. it started with a meeting with leadership. And again, I will tell you guys, I thought I was crushing it. So (laughs) 
and I was not expecting to go into this meeting and be told pretty much verbatim, you're the worst person on my team. And (laughs) yeah, you're the worst person on my team, pretty much verbatim. And because we're talking about making work human, we had all talked amongst ourselves and we could kind of identify if who would be the weakest link amongst ourselves and it definitely was not me so Mm. imagine my surprise when leadership said this to me you are the worst person on the team and because i was so excited and so enamored and really had put so much of who i was into this job the very first thing i did when i heard those words was i believed them Mm. and so that took me on a series of if i'm the worst person on the team what do I need to do to be better? Oh. How can I improve? What can I do? And so that that really led me to overworking, coming yes. in early, staying late, raising my hand, doing all the things that we as women are taught to do, right? Be a team player. Oh my goodness, I'm the worst person on the team. I'm going to overwork. I'm going to prove myself. And unfortunately, that mark of being the worst person on the team, it just never got better. And mm-hmm. while I'm being subjected to extremely harsh criticism of my work, my, my very high profile projects were taken away from me and replaced with very administrative work that was now being scrutinized mm-hmm. in a way that I had never mm-hmm. scrutinized before. I was excluded from meetings. So just things like that I didn't know at the time. And when you're in a place where you really feel like you have done something in some type of way to, to deserve this treatment, mm-hmm. all you can see is how can I get better? And I did not know it at the time. And and that situation did not get better. It just got progressively worse. I went through a period where I was really depressed, gained a lot of weight, hair fell out, Mm -hmm. physically ill during that time, emotionally ill. So there, I'll be honest, we're talking about being human. There was a lot of drinking that was happening because I was trying to self-medicate. And the only advice that I got was, quite frankly, if you are going to be a Black woman working in corporate America, these are the kinds of things that you're going to have to endure. And I was very early 30s at the time, and I just thought, I cannot endure this for 30 years. Yeah. Um, And I didn't know at the time I was able to get out of that role. I was able to find another job because that's also the only piece of advice you get. Mm. You got to find another job. Yes. And when I got the other job, and that's where I feel like the work really happened, because Mm. when I got to the other job, I realized the new job didn't fix me. That that same person and you see me now, people see me on social and they can't believe that I was in such a place with communications and writing where I could not write emails. Mm. I had a coworker, one trusted friend on the team that I would turn to and say, would you read this for me? Mm. And we are not talking the press releases that I was working on. We're not talking the corporate talking points that are going to go out across the company. I was asking her to read just general interpersonal communications between myself and other coworkers, because that's how much the scrutiny had gotten so so difficult that I felt like I just could not do the basic functions of my job anymore. And so my confidence was completely shot. And that same person went into the new job, believing that she wasn't good enough, believing she had to prove herself, believing that her new team was going to find out, not having confidence, not speaking up in meetings and asking questions that I should have been asking. As a new employee, you have a right to ask some questions. There's a learning curve there. But for me, it felt like, oh, if I ask questions, then they're going to realize that they bet on the wrong person. What, how, when was it after that you decided to become a coach? So it, it wasn't until probably about maybe a few years after that, because yes. there, there was a lot of work that had yeah. to happen. And I really, I had no idea until yeah. 
I was having lunch with some girlfriends and we were talking about very difficult working environments. And I was talking of this particular instance. And I said to my friends, jokingly, I said, I felt like they just bullied me. And there was something in that word that just stuck Mm. in my body and I couldn't let it go. And there was this question Mm. of, is that a thing? (laughs) Do people get bullied at work? Is that a thing? Mm. And I came home. So this was probably all of that maybe happened in 2015, 2016. And so we're in 2020, 2021 now, pandemic world. And I just, I Googled workplace bullying and there it was. And Mm -hmm. I realized that I, that is what happened to me. I thought it was just toxicity. I thought it was just a byproduct of being a black woman working in corporate America, that Mm -hmm. I've seen this happen to so many other black women that it happened to me that I was able to talk about it at brunch with friends and Mm -hmm. everybody else was relating to this very same story, but we all work in different industries, reading stories online. So as this big DEI push happened with the murder of George Floyd, I'm reading all of these other women's stories and it just clicked for me of how can this engineer in Texas and this teacher in Florida Mm -hmm. and this person out in California How is it that we are all having identical experiences and nobody is talking about it? And the Mm. only thing that we're getting told is you have to endure. And I'm also hearing this in these entrepreneurial spaces of Mm. this is why Black women are leaving. But I knew my experience of having to put myself back together. And I thought, how will you go into the next role? Yeah. How do you put yourself, how do you continue to endure? How do you lead the company that you're trying to build with all of this baggage that yeah. we're not dealing with? Because the only advice you get is either leave or get another job. Like, girl, just get another job. And it's if I told you I had a romantic partner that did the same things to me that this leadership structure did, I just don't know how much people would tell me, just get another boyfriend, just get another partner. Right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they would tell you no. That was horrible. Take some time, get yourself back together and then get back into it. We don't do that when it comes to the place where we spend the majority of our time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you. There is so much there to unpack. And I want to pull in a couple threads because it's so powerful to hear your story. One is the attribution error that I hear you naming, which is you went from hero to zero in yes. terms of I'm kicking it, I'm, this is the job of my dreams, and I'm kicking it to all of a sudden getting what sounds like, Zanika, some sort of nonspecific feedback that was yes. qualitative in nature about you're the worst, you're the weakest link on my team, and then had to figure out how to deal with that. And it sounds like what you did, I'll pull a term from Dr. Brene Brown, who's one of my mentors, which is that you started hustling for worthiness. I'm now I'm going to just, I'm just going to buckle down. I'm going to do it better than anyone else. And then as you're doing this and I'm replaying this because I'm thinking about the patterns that your experience represents for probably so many women like you and also people who identify as other than women as well in their workplace where we make up, we attribute that we are the problem, which is really a shame response, isn't it? It This is a, this is painful. I must not be enough. And if only I can fix what's wrong with me, then this will recover. And then, of course, you played back the years of trying to do that. 
and having that all be with you, even with a new job. And I think it's just brilliant that you then through your own healing, were able to say, wait a second, how can I help other women, other people like me to not have to carry that baggage into the next opportunity, but to actually have a way to heal and to put themselves back together without having to feel that they are not worthy or that they are the problem here. Yeah. So what a journey, what a journey. And there's so many people like you. As you were talking, I was thinking about the work of Jeffrey Pfeffer, whose work you may be familiar with. Jeffrey is a, he's a researcher with Stanford University. I don't know him personally. I suspect he's actually a little difficult to talk to based on some of what I see with him on social, but I admire his writing. He's written a couple of books. Leadership BS is one of them. Dying for a Paycheck is another one. And Jeffrey Pfeffer is not talking specifically about the experience of Black women in the workplace, but he does talk about the cost of toxicity on employees, on our bodies, in all the ways you just described, on our mental health, on our well-being. He talks about the cost both to the organization and to society at large, and of course, the cost to the individual, which you really unpacked for us that you endured as well. Very expensive years that you Absolutely. were out there suffering. Absolutely. And I think one more impact that I like to call out as it relates to bullying and toxicity as well, that people just do not talk enough about are the financial implications. We mm. all know it's bad on our emotional you know, and we're learning more and more about how it impacts our physical health, but the impacts to your financial health are very real as well, because we know oftentimes people are forced to leave these environments because they don't want to continue risking their physical and emotional health anymore. And so they're sometimes forced to do that at the expense of their financial well-being too. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's an, un- that's an untenable choice. We talk about in my first book with Kemi Dunaway, Fit Matters, How to Love Your Job, we evaluated and landed on seven things that we need from work. And the first one is to meet our basic needs, which is our cash and non-cash compensation. And that one stays in first place unless two conditions are met. One is that we feel paid fairly and we can make our life work. But that need doesn't ever go away. It still lives even when the other needs bubble up as a priority to us, the needs of being seen, the needs of connection, the needs of learning. And so what you're saying there is that somebody has to make a choice between their actual meeting their basic needs to provide food, water, shelter, safety, and security for their family and themselves against their emotional and well-being needs of being in a toxic environment. I'm curious, did you ever get any specific feedback of what you could, like, what was the problem here? I will say yes and no, because once I I did get myself back together, I did ask. You ask, gosh, if I'm the worst person here, what, why, and what can I do to be better? And so there was some feedback and there was a lot of hustling on my part to to show here are the things that I've done. And it just wasn't met with any additional follow-up. There wasn't a great, let's expand on that. There wasn't a, that's not what I actually meant. Let's work about work through it this way. There really was not an actual partnership that was going to happen. It was, here are some things that have happened that could have been addressed in the moment and they never were, but it was, here are some things that have happened mm. and maybe, maybe you can try those things. Wow. Which is I narrow in on that a little bit because I hear this often from 
black men and women in the workplace that they don't get the feedback they need. And so I, and that they get generalizations. I hear it from women as well. We're, when there's research that backs this up, that certain populations, certain identities receive higher quality feedback, which is specific and measurable to improve. And so white men in particular tend to get the best feedback of all which allows them to make changes that are helpful in some ways. They don't get feedback in some other ways that they probably need. For example, they're under, they get less feedback about their social emotional interactions mm-hmm. than women and people of color, which allows them to be ineffective at times as team members and as leaders because they don't have the emotional intelligence there. But I just think it's such a travesty what you went through and what so many go through in the world of work without any targeted way to to stop hustling and to really learn and grow, as well as this very random sort of idea that the problem was you. Yes. Right? You can get that. Yeah. 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 And I think that's that's the kinds of persistent race discrimination that we see happen in the workplace to this day that is subtle and potent and gender too, right? In your case, probably both. So when you are working with people in your practice now, where do you start? What's the work that helps people begin as you did yourself in your journey to recover from workplace trauma, from workplace bullying, to finding that grounded confidence again? Yeah, I think for a lot of, and I do coach primarily women, I coach primarily Black women. That's a lot of who I work with. I do get a lot of engagement from white women as well, but the majority of the women that that are engaging with me for coaching are Black women. And where we start, where I start with any of my clients is really around acknowledgement. Because typically, and I don't know if this is all, if this is a woman's issue or if this is Black women specifically, but we have this thing about us that we just are made to endure. We have to endure. And there's not a place to actually stop and say, here's what happened to me and really sit in that. Because I know for me, when I realized that I had been bullied by this leadership structure, I was embarrassed. Hmm. I'm I'm a grown woman. I got bills to pay. And here I am because when people think of bullying, we think of children on a playground. And so having to admit to myself that I was in a bullying culture, there were a lot of emotions that came with that. And I had to allow myself to feel that. And that's one of the things that I really allow my clients to say from the jump, let's acknowledge what happened to you. And what are the words that you don't want to say? And I will tell you for most of the women of color, we do not want to say we were discriminated against. Yes. But that's really what happened. And the only way that we can heal from that is we have to be real and acknowledge that is what happened to you. And allowing them to space the space, especially for Black women, if you angry about it, then damn it, you got a right to be mad. I get angry, Mo, when I'm like, there are so many other women who are suffering in silos about what is happening to them just going to work and trying to feed their family. And we get to be angry about that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you said something really powerful there. And I want to make sure our listeners get the dot, dot, dot about it, right? Which is that many of the women you work with, Black women in professional context, they don't, the last thing they want to name or notice is that this actually is discrimination. Tell us more about that. Why is that? Where's that coming from? What are the assumptions that are underpinning that? 
the assumptions around it are you don't want to be the person who's pulling the card, meaning the race card. Yeah. That's the last thing that you want to do because we understand the weight of that. We understand the weight of going into a space and saying, I feel like I'm discriminated against. And what could happen with that? Because oftentimes I, I think that we know collectively, usually we aren't heard. And that was the case for me was I had tons of evidence. I also had realized after the fact that this particular culture, they had a very long history of mistreating employees. And when I went to the traditional HR structure, I was told, are you sure? Are you sure that they're doing these things to you? As if I would Mm -hmm. go through the trouble of scheduling a meeting with HR to not be sure. That is a mistake that white people make all the time, in my experience. People who look like me, I was just counseling someone about this the other day. Someone had witnessed, someone had a team member come to them with a concern that someone had um, used a racial slur. And the person, the peer who received that information said to that person, who was a person of color, are you sure they meant to be racist? Mm. Which was, of course, a ridiculous question because nobody usually means to be racist, right? Like we, we are not choosing to say or do something that's racist or to have bias that interferes with our behavior. If we're doing it, it's because we it's what we learn to do. And we don't, we were raised in a racist culture and we either don't know or haven't paid attention to a different way to be. And so that hesitance for black women to name what's true for them, that desire to not make waves, that desire to not, as you said, pull the race card, it's really powerful. And it means probably just to highlight for listeners, it means that black women like you will take more on themselves. They will heroically carry more trauma, more pain, more repeated incidents of microaggressions, more bullying than any human being should before they even raise their hand around this is a problem. Because of just how much they don't want to be the one who's rocking the boat and saying, this is, I'm being discriminated against. Because they're just, like you said, they're just trying to do a job to feed their families. And also probably usually, and we see this, of course, in research for women of all races, that there tends to be a much higher tendency for women to over effort for the same jobs that men hold. Yes. And black women in particular. And in my case, Mo, I didn't want it to be true, right? Go back to- Yes. This is the place I wanted to be. When we talk about loving your job, yeah, you could have slapped that company's logo on my forehead. I was the company girl. Oh. So I didn't want that to be true. No, of course not. Of course not, because that just, that just disconnects you even further. Right. And then the trauma itself. And I'm reminded, as a white woman, I have a lot of privilege at work, and I have not experienced racial discrimination. Of course, I wouldn't. I'm a member of of the majority culture. I have experienced sexism, though. And I was reminded, as you were talking, I was reminded of a moment in my career that just flashed up, which was very different because it's much more micro than what you've experienced. But it was a moment where I was doing a test. It was early in my career. I was um, a guide in a wilderness setting. And I took a test. We had to take a rock climbing test every year, which was like to show that we could set up this technical rock climb. And I was testing on the same day as my boyfriend at the time, who was a white male. And he was not a great climber. Like I had worked with him. I did not actually trust some of his systems. I would like double check his knots because I was like, this guy, I'm not sure. He's cute, but he's not that good at setting up top rope. But we tested with two different testers. And during my test, 
my tester asked me to demonstrate a certain knot and I hesitated. I was like, wait, hang on, let me just practice it real quick, right? Before I show you. So I practiced it real quick and then I showed it. It's a kinesthetic skill. I hadn't done that knot a lot. It was a rare one. And I ended up failing my test. And the feedback I got at the end was that I didn't know that knot, that I had to practice it once before I showed it to him. And I get back to camp that day and I learned that my boyfriend is all happy because he passed. Mm. And I remember thinking, wait a second. Like, I know that I know my stuff more than he does. And by the way, I knew that not. I just wanted the kinesthetic practice to make sure I got 100%, which is what I would do on a climbing climbing right. site, anyway. Before someone's attached to my rope in a death-defying situation, I'm going to verify that I am doing the right thing. And I was like, this guy passed? I didn't pass. What is up with this? But the part that feels the most familiar to me, Zanika, with what you're saying is that I, the last thing I wanted to believe was that my instructor had bias towards me. Mm -hmm. Because I knew that as soon as I said that, and I was in a male-dominated field. This was in the 1980s. There were not very many women mountaineering guides. And I knew as soon as I said that everybody would be like, she's the weak link, man. She's just going to make everything about a gender issue. This is not a gender issue. We are not sexist here. We want women guides. And so I knew that if I said that, I was dead in the water, dead in the water. So that's what you've experienced and others like you over and over and over and over again in an unrelenting. So first you help them find the words to say, this was not okay. And I was blank. So this happened to me because of somebody else's behavior or a system of toxicity. And then where do you go from there with them? And I think probably the biggest thing that most, I, you know, I coach over video most, so I can see them sit back in their chair when I say this is, how are you going to validate your experience? if you never get validation from your company. Mm. And they always go, I can do that? Yeah, you can mm. say what I went through happened. And the reason why I take people there yeah. is because you have to, because when just for what we talked about, how just covert some of this is, it is very difficult to prove, even just on the bullying side, there, there are not a lot of companies that actually really have policies around workplace bullying. And so if you're going to go back just to a regular working scenario, you have to learn to validate that experience without the validation of the company. Because for most people, they're never going to do it. For a lot of these women who are coaching with me, they still work adjacent to their bully. They may be on a different team, but they still have to encounter that person. So they've got to find a way to make meaning out of that experience and get on the side of not having to carry that shame, which we often call resilience, which is the ability to rise through the shame and say, hang on a second, this thing happened to me. I didn't precipitate this. Yes. And even if that's not validated by my company, I know what's real. I know what happened here and I'm not broken. I can imagine that's really the begin, beginning of some of that deeper healing because then as they look for whatever it is that they want to do next, they have a much more grounded way to enter. So tell us more about that. Once people have begun to do some of this internal work, yeah. what shifts around how they show up? So one of the things that we do that's probably still on that internal work side, but we start yeah. to shift now into the other piece of that is I help them identify What is the big lie that your toxic environment has placed on you? And it's usually some thread of not good enough. Um, Mine was very specific. They attacked 
what is so crazy to me, but they attacked my communication skills, which I can tell you since kindergarten, all of my report cards have talked about, I either talk too much or I'm a great communicator. I've never had a problem with communication. And that is the one thing that they attacked, right? So go back to this woman who could not send just a regular, hey, Mo, following up on that project I sent you last week type emails. And so I had to, I was sitting in the new job because that's where a lot of this work came from. Mm. I was like, man, that feels like a lie. That I don't know how to communicate feels like a lie. What Mm. do I know to be true? And I pulled out my Clifton Strength Finder assessment and my number one was communication. There it was. And that was an aha for me. Oh, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know I'm a great communicator. Mr. Clifton says I'm a great communicator. I'm going to lean into that because the other piece that I didn't tell you was how I even got to that Strength Finder was we did a team building Mm. and I was on the opposite spectrum of my entire team and they use that against me to say this is see this is just another reason why you shouldn't be here we're all over here and you're way out there by yourself isn't this conversation great i'll be quick so we can get back to it are you sitting here listening to this conversation and thinking okay it's time for me to support my people in the ways they need because i need them and I might be missing out on a way to see and support them. We've got you. Email us, info at mocaric.com, and we will get you all the details about our signature program, the Leading People program, that can help you with just that. Oh, and thanks for being here at the pod. Will you help us get to more people? Share, subscribe, and leave a review. We really love those. I was running from that. I wanted to be all these other things. Like, like I want to be the activator and the this and the that, but I wasn't. I was the communicator. I was the connector. I was the, the bridgineer, whatever it is. I was all of those blue green things, if you're familiar with Clifton. And so that was an aha. I put that thing so far back. I would have told, I told people if I ever see whoever Mr. Clifton is, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. But I had to go back to that because in that moment where I was so broken, that was the only bit of truth that I felt like I had about myself. And it's great. People like to say, oh, I can do the affirmations and I am this and I am that. But when you're from a space where the only thing that you've been fed is what you are not, yeah, I needed that document. I needed that assessment. I needed that science to say, okay, this is who I am. These are the skills that I have. And now how do I use these things? And how do I come back to this every single day and start from this place, start from a place of truth and not from the lies? Beautiful. And I'm struck with that stylistic assessment and the erosion of trust in the, as you guys couldn't see this because we're on audio, but Zanika like literally put the quote marks around the team building, right? Which is, I think, really powerful for leaders who might be listening around. We use assessments like that in our work. And one of the very first things we say is this is not a label. This is not who you are. You, this is one facet of your identity that could be accurate, may also be not accurate because it's one type of psychometric assessment. But in your case, it was another dimension where you were an outsider, right? So now you probably not only have being the only black person. I was the, the only, only black, black person. <laughs> only black person, only black woman, and now only person who communicates this way. Yeah. So clearly the problem with all of this is you because we are all this way, which is, I think, a, a really powerful insight 
for anyone who's listening, who is an insider on any dimension, you're white, you're male, you're hetero, you're cis, or you're, you're a woman who's white and hetero and able-bodied to listen and to say, hang on a second. The intersectionality here of the multiple layers of insiderness and outsiderness is part of what triggers this kind of bullying. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't notice, I don't notice what I'm doing when I see you as different to your capacity to connect with me, right? Yeah. Now, you need me to see your difference. You need me to acknowledge, yeah. right, yeah. who you are. But you also need me to acknowledge that you we have sameness. We have right. both. And I've got to be able to look at that in an open-hearted way. And I think that we're not good at that. I think we don't notice. This is where I see it happen a lot in hiring, particularly in what I would call bro cultures where, you know, high tech, for example, where people say, Mo, we cannot find any women engineers. We cannot find any black accountants. Like really, there's no women engineers in the entire world that you can hire for your company. There's really no black accountants. This is their excuse for how they can't get more diversity on their team. And it's because of their inability to see beyond their identity group as being part of them. So powerful. Wow. What would you say for people who are working with black women who are not black women, what are some of the important messages that you think that they hear from the experience you personally had and went over and over again in your client population that that would help people connect the dots around what does partnership and allyship with Black women really look like in the world of work when we're doing it, when we're actually kicking it? Yeah. So I, I like to answer that question because I get it a lot, Mo, with just sharing the other side of my ally in that experience. There, w- there was somebody else who was watching. And I knew this person was a friend. I didn't know she was an accomplice. I'm going to call her a little bit more than an ally. I'm going to call her an accomplice. Because I like to say an accomplice is going to get in the car and ride with you. And she definitely suited up on my behalf. And she was watching what was happening to me. And I didn't realize until I was out of the situation that this young woman had went to a very prominent leader in this particular company. And she expressed what she saw happening to me. Now, mind you, I had very many conversations with people, even had conversations with HR Mm. and nothing happened. And I will say that this was a young white woman. And it is, I 100% believe that the only reason I was able to continue my career Mm. within that particular company is because she spoke up, is because she was willing to say something has got to change. And she never told me that she did it. But I learned after the fact that she did. She went to someone on my behalf and said, what I am seeing is not right. Mm. It is not who we are as a company. This is someone that we should have in this company who contributes greatly and something needs to be done. Wow. And so that is the one thing that, that I say to my white sisters is that do not discount yeah. that your voice matters and your voice carries more weight in these situations. And that goes for anybody who is witnessing bullying. The bystanders can bring more change to that person's situation than the person who's experiencing the bullying or the discrimination can. Absolutely. And I love the differentiation from allyship to accomplice. I think it's it's a big difference. And I'm sitting here listening, even just right now, Zanika, like in season two of our podcast, We've had, we've had a number of guests who are black women. One of them was Sasha Thompson, who runs a company called The Equity Equation. Do you know Sasha? I do. 
Yeah. So Sasha's story on the pod is very similar to yours. No surprise, right? Around an act of discrimination and bullying that she faced, which was that she was in a she was in a building with her colleagues. She was the only black woman there. And one of her fellow senior leaders, I think vice president or something like that, confused her with a woman who was a prostitute. Yes. I, I listened to that episode. Yes. Yeah. They and were at a work event. Like a work event. Event. And when she said it, just as you did, when she said it, that this is what happened, it, was, it wasn't really heard. And of course, people said, no, they're not doing that. They don't think you all look alike. And it was very much minimized, minimization, a strategy of not being very competent in inclusion is minimization. But one of the things that she retold, which you are also retelling here, in her case, it was actually a white man who was an accomplice who had seen the interaction and said, actually, no, folks, this is not about Sasha seeing this wrong, that she saw this accurately, and we need to do better. We need to understand why it is we're doing that and not do that to our colleague. Yes. This is our colleague here. And it was only when his voice spoke up that people began to seriously dig into what had happened and what they could do about it. So I think that's really powerful. And of course, what that means is that like in your case, that white woman had to have some skin in the game absolutely, of her own desire to create a healthy workplace. She did that. Yes, she was efforting to support you, her friend, but she also was doing that because she knew and sounds like she named our culture is not, we say that we don't want to be this way. And I think that's a really important subtlety that a lot of people, white women especially, get hung up on is that they don't, they, white women who look like me are enculturated to be helpful. Yes. So the mistake that many white women make is that instead of doing what your colleague did, I lean in and I try to be helpful to you. Yes. Oftentimes with pity, right? Or sympathy, like, oh, Zanika, that's so horrible that it happened to you. You don't deserve that. And, and I act in that way. And yet I'm not actually, I don't have any skin in the game. I'm not claiming my own perspective, which is this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't like this. I don't like this that's happening. Yes. Yeah. So powerful, the powerful accomplice for you. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that. And I would say I had a black male mentor say this on a panel one time. He said they were asking him a very similar question about racialized trauma and discrimination in the workplace. And he said, if I if I asked all of the white women in here to say, do they think that his colleague, we'll just call him Chad, do you think that Chad has some slight advantage because he's a male, he went to this school, he did all these things, and everybody raised their hand. And he said, if you could believe that, if you could believe that there is sexism, why is it so difficult for you to believe that there are still elements of racism baked into these workplaces? And my version of that is if you can believe in a witch wound of trauma passed down from our grandmothers, then believe in the same racialized trauma for us because yeah. ours is worse. I did a post a couple of years ago about I think that we like to say that we're our ancestors' wildest dreams. I think if my great-grandma could see me now, she'd be terrified for me, right? This little Black girl who cusses and doesn't back down from anybody and is going into these work structures telling people, you got to stop treating people like this. Mm. Because there was a time when, not too long ago, being a vocal person of color would get you killed. It was your life on the line. And so yeah. I think when we think about trauma that is passed down through our DNA, there's a lot of that still happening within us too. 
Absolutely. Epigenetics, right? And what we're carrying from our ancestors that is still not healed and is still lives on for us in trauma. Yeah. And so I would just say to my white sisters, be mindful of that, that we are bringing all of that into the workplace with us. But we also have a huge, many of us feel this huge weight to excel in spite of. That's what we have been taught. Yes. We will excel. We will do well in spite of all of these other things. So I, I tend to get a lot of my white women who like to mentor me and tell me how to be in the workplace and that I should be more aggressive. That's a lot of the criticism that I get is that I should be a little more assertive and a little more aggressive. And I have to remind them that actually, if I were to be a little bit more assertive, it would not be perceived as being assertive. It would not be perceived as passionate. Yep. It would be met with, gosh, Zanika is so confrontational. Why is she so angry? I don't want to work with her because she's difficult. It's the angry black woman. You would get the angry black woman stereotype. And I just want to underline what you just said, Zanika, because, oh, again, it's just such, it's just brilliant what you're saying, right? It's like words of another truth bomb. If I had a a, like glitter, let's put the glitter on the screen right now. Because again, I think it's like an innocent mistake that people make that we can learn from, which is to really become much more aware of the attributions we're making and why we're making them based on how we were taught. And it's interesting that that example you gave has to do with white women, right? A white woman who says, Zanika, please be more assertive. You should be more assertive. Because that is a lot about enculturation, right? That white woman probably has been told, here's how you can succeed in the workplace. Be more like a rugged individualist, the sort of inherited old style of leadership that we have that comes from white male culture, Northern European culture. This is this is statistical data that we understand about what good looks like. So that white woman now has assimilated into that culture. She's it worked for me. Right. I got more said now in some cases, of course, we hear from white women too. It doesn't work for them either. They're called the B word. But maybe it worked a little better for me. But also I have a lot of proximity as a white woman to white male culture that you don't have. So now I'm gonna put that value on you if you would just be that way without really thinking about the stereotype I'm buying into or that I'm unwittingly fanning, which is that you that actually could be unsafe for you to do that. What you're talking about there is that in order to do all that work, in order to really understand and be effective as an accomplice in that situation, I have to be willing to look at and own my own assimilation Mm -hmm. to the dominant culture. I have to be willing to say, wait a second, what have I learned about what good looks like here? What am I now projecting onto Zanika, assuming that will also work for her, without actually considering the stakes might be different for her? So in order to be in that space, I need to be willing to look at my own identity, my own lived experience, and then I need to also become really curious about yours. Yeah which might include me saying, what would it be like for you if you became more assertive in this situation? You say, it would be horrible (laughs) because I'd be characterized as the angry black women like has happened to me 25 times in the past two weeks. And so that is not actually good. Then I'm like, okay, bad idea. What else? (laughs) Right? Because I, that's how I can understand. But I think what happens is we get afraid. We're like, I don't want to assume that I want to let her know that I think she should do this because I want to be helpful. And it's a misconstruence because it's not helpful. You're the best person to tell me what I can do that's helpful. And I've got to be really curious in order to do that. And I've also got to be really willing to own and claim and even notice my own identity, which includes even acknowledging I'm white, which for many people, many women in particular, who I'm talking about here, that is very difficult. We see in a lot of the systems where we're doing active 
leadership development that some of the biggest resistors that we face to real material progress in DEI and also in bullying are white women because of just how sensitive they are to this kind of rigor around around work and they get triggered into shame. And I think a part of that, too, that that I talk to my clients about is just understanding. And I think you either said it when we were chatting a little bit or maybe in the conversation, the structure was never intended. If you're a woman, like going to work was not something that was created for you to do. Like it was not designed for us. And especially being black women, it was not Mm -hmm. the structure has still not evolved to really make space for us. And I think that what I try to do just personally is I try to take the people out of that. And if I can understand that we've all been taught to think about work from a racist lens, then it becomes less about you, the person. And it's just, you're reacting to the structure and the culture that, that we all exist in. And that's not, I'm not making you at fault. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm not, I'm just saying it goes back to, we all doing the best with what we got. (laughs) We're all doing the best with what we got. Where we are more educated. I think that people and companies have to get real about, do you want to change this culture or not? Absolutely. And I think one of the paradoxes that we talk about sometimes that I think really serves the purpose you're talking about is the paradox of it's not my fault and I'm responsible, mm-hmm. right? So it's not my fault that I maybe don't see this through a racial lens, or I maybe don't know what I don't know. And I'm, or maybe that I'm anxious talking about race or noticing that I'm like, it's okay. It's not my fault that I have this challenge in this space, but I'm responsible for finding a way through the yeah. messy middle with you yeah. as an accomplice, as a partner. And I do it on behalf of, as you just said, the culture we're co-creating. I yeah. do it not because I want to be helpful just to you, although that may be a nice gain, but I also believe that it's the right thing to do because it's integrated with our values. And I have a stake in that too. It benefits right. me as well. And I think that's one of the really important pieces about that level of partnership. Yes. Is that we have skin in the game. That's it. Um, you said it. That's it. Yeah. And we've got to do it. And so I can just imagine, I just love this conversation so much because I can imagine a woman who has worked with you, who has had some trauma, because we can, I think we can probably pretty much assume based on what you're saying and the data that I've seen, most black women in the workplace have experienced workplace trauma. So if we assume that's true, then now that woman does some healing, does some work on her own ground and confidence so that then I, as an accomplice in partnering with her, can meet her with that groundedness because I also have done my own work. Yes. And that's what it really takes, doesn't it, to build these kinds of cultures? It does. It does. It takes, it definitely, and I get asked this question of, don't you want to work in the companies and fix the companies? And there is a part of this work that yes, that has to happen. Mm. It's not where I live. I live in, because from what I have seen, there hasn't been any programming to help the people who are experiencing this. And I think that we have a lot of people, I think a lot of the mentoring that I get comes from a place of brokenness, comes from a place of hurt, comes from a place of people dealing with their own trauma still and putting that, that onto me. And now I help women also, some of the work that I do too, it's not all about work, Mo. That's part of how I got to the place I got to in the first place. Yeah. And you got to start to separate that identity now yeah. from this paycheck. Yes. Two different uh, 
Yeah, so that I don't have to over hustle for my worthiness all the time because I can see into I'm worthy even if I'm not attached to that paycheck or that job, which is powerful work, I think. For me, that there's a big pendulum there around women's liberation that I hear from white women as well, which is that we've when you've gotten a message that you can have it all, there's a bit of a setup there around just how hard that really is. And that what does it mean if you're making choices to say, yeah, I believe I can have it all, but not at this particular moment. Mm -hmm. Do I want it all? Yeah. I want more pleasure. I want more comfort. I want more ease in my life. And so I'm not going to do that job or I'm not going to do that work for a family member in that space. So that that we're entitled to that. We're all entitled to that. Yeah, but, and I know we're getting close to time, but that's another piece that I think particularly for Black women, we don't feel like we're entitled to have all of that. Mm. We don't really talk about and happiness and joy. Grind it out. Oh my gosh, yes. And we had Dr. Kanika Sims on the pod as well. Do you know her? I don't know Kanika Sims. She's a force. She's a physician. And her work is primarily in in wellness and in working with patients, but she also has gotten really passionate about well-being, particularly for Black women in the world of work. And one of the things that she talks about is exactly that, which is part of why she's focused so much on well-being is because she feels as though her history, her family's history has not given to Black women any space at all to actually be well to invest in their own wellness, to take time for themselves. Because like you said, we just are taught to endure. And as a society, we expect that enduring Correct. of Black women. Correct. And so there's a radical reframe that you're talking about there around around care. And Dr. Sims is saying the yes. same thing. And I love it. I yes. think it's so powerful. Because we say to leaders all the time, if you're not investing in you and your own well-being, you won't be able to serve your team your organization and your community. Absolutely. That was that's another piece of this that I think helps people shift, right? Because now they're working on they think they're coming here and I'm going to give them this career plan and these confidence points and then I start asking them, "When was the last time you had fun?" <laughs> and they can't remember. And they don't remember or it's I'm going to do it. I'm saving up for this big trip in 2 years. And it's oh, so you're not going to have fun till 2025. <laughs> Yes, yes. And what what happens in our brains and in our bodies when we give ourselves those little moments of fun, those moments of play that do help us heal, Yeah, that help us stay grounded. And it's a real skill, isn't it, Zanika, that we have to learn. And it's, and it's a beautiful transformation to watch people when I say to them in most of the earlier sessions, there will come a time when whomever has sent you to me, that bully, that toxic manager, the toxic group, whoever they are, there's going to come a time when somebody's going to mention their name and you will not, you won't feel anything. You won't flinch up. Your body won't tighten. And they don't believe me. They all collect, everybody across the board is like, okay, girl. (laughs) And then they come to me and say, I went to a networking event and I thought he or she was going to be there. And I went anyway, because this is my career. And I want to be in that room so that I can make the connections that I'm going to make. And I don't care if they're there or not. Beautiful. It loses its power over them to drive behavior, which is so beautiful. 
And so, I'm a petty coach, Mo. So I remind them. I'd be like, I told you that was going to happen and you didn't believe me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's wisdom there for all of us, not just black women, around how we do us and how we claim that space and move in there. And of course, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Right. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. And so your programs are, you offer individual work and you offer group work. I love, love, love the work you're doing. It matters. We need more of it. Tell our audience how they can support your work. Give us the deets. Yes. So the best way to, to support this work is share this podcast, man. We talked a lot about what our white sisters can do to help. Share this message with someone. Have a discussion about it. Think about if you're a leader, is there anything that I'm doing right now and how I'm leading that it can be perceived? Mm -hmm. If you have people of color on your teams, listen to them, like really listen. And then if you want to support me personally, if you're interested in any of the programs that I'm doing, I do have a eight week, I call it a work detox program called Dare to Disrupt. And we go through all of the things that I talked about with Mo today. We start with dropping the lies. We talk about pleasure. We talk about being intentional with your time, your efforts, your money, all of that stuff. It's a lot of fun in that group. And the wait list is always open. It's a rolling enrollment. We'll do the next cohort here at the top of the year. So Joining that waitlist just gets you way more free resources from me. You get conversations like this that I'm having with Mo. You get resources from other coaches that I'm talking to. So it's not you're just waiting for enrollment in that program, but the waitlist is a great way for you to get more resources and stay connected with me. And then there's also my calendar is open for coaching clients right now. So we are recording this in the summer. And if you want to maybe start working through some of this stuff with me specifically and personally in a one-on-one capacity that is also available starting this summer. Wonderful. And say the name of the program one more time, because I think it it bumped a little on the audience. Yes. I probably got excited about it and started moving my hands, but it is called Dare to Disrupt. And so the premise behind it is we're really going to start to look at this overworking, where that's coming from, start to disrupt some beliefs and mindsets so that you can create a different action plan yourself and really discover, hey, what is it that, what does success actually look like? Because Mm -hmm. a lot of us are overworking ourselves to to meet this burden of success that maybe we didn't define for ourselves. And it's time Mm -hmm. to to disrupt that and recreate something for yourself. Beautiful. What a great title, Dare to Disrupt. So I like to call it, it's not career coaching, but it is life coaching for ambitious career-driven women. Beautiful, beautiful. And I hear that there's a group program, also individual. You're, you've got some space available right now in summer and people should reach out. We can find you on LinkedIn. All your deets will be yes. in your website. All the deets are on. I'm on all the socials. Okay, awesome. Zanika, it's been delightful. Thank you so much for joining me today. What an enlivened conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work you do in the world. Thank you so much, Mo. This has been so good. 